0: From the Bills' famous cheese spread studios in the downstairs pub, a very special Indianapolis 500 edition of the Blockout Sports Pod is back on the air. From behind the master control desk in the aforementioned downstairs pub, my name is Travis Carter. I will be your host and moderator for this evening. And tonight, we're going to do things a little bit differently than we usually do here on the block out as we record this it is a wednesday evening the first practice session of this year of this year's uh preparations for the indianapolis 500 took place today which is always an exciting day and we will be recording our regular episode tomorrow night thursday night It will drop uh, as normal on Friday afternoon, and we will be covering the PGA Championship, the NBA playoffs, an unfortunate result in the XFL Championship game, among some other things to look forward to. But tonight we're going to do things a little bit differently. Uh, Tuna and the fabulous one, Freddie, are not here this evening. I have a very special guest here with me tonight that uh, shares, some might say an obsession, but I would say a keen interest in the Indianapolis 500 and in motorsports in general. And I will be introducing him to you uh, here shortly as we get into this episode. That will be strictly dedicated tonight to the greatest spectacle in racing, The Indianapolis 500. Now, a lot of you that are listeners to this program every week might have noticed that when I introduce the show or do the introduction to the show every week, I say that I am sitting behind the master control desk. And a few of you have noticed, uh, my guest tonight included, that that is a nod to the legendary voice of the Indianapolis 500 on the Indianapolis 500 radio network, the late, great Sid Collins, who was always in the master control tower uh, commentating and directing and anchoring the race broadcast for many, many years. So that's the first kind of Easter egg that... uh, i dropped here when i would uh introduce the show was the master control desk because i had such great respect and uh a great love of sid collins even though he actually passed away before my time of really being exposed to the indianapolis motor speedway radio network uh he passed away in 1977. Of course, I was just a you know three or four years old at that time. But thanks to the magic of technology and programs such as the Talk of Gasoline Alley, or Trackside, or now Beyond the Bricks, all shows that you can uh, easily look up. Uh, Beyond the Bricks and Trackside are currently still in production. Talk of Gasoline Alley, which I'm sure my guest will discuss uh, as we continue on in this program tonight. All those things uh, being part of what draws us to Indianapolis in the month of May and the Indianapolis 500 specifically. I also wanted to get out of the way quickly that the usual blockout sports pod theme song obviously was not heard tonight instead we heard what maybe a lot of you might recognize as the theme from the soundtrack of the movie the delta force but to anyone of a certain age that might be listening to this program tonight that is also a fan of the Indianapolis 500, you would recognize that as the opening theme that ABC Sports used for many years with the legendary Paul Page providing the narration as that theme song would play. It had always been, uh, at least from the time that I can remember, Uh, having an interest in broadcasting or anything like that. It had always been a kind of a funny thing to think about if I would ever get the opportunity to talk over the Delta Force theme in regards to the Indianapolis 500. And tonight, this podcast has provided me that opportunity, and I think that's really cool. And I very much enjoyed that. I hope that you did, too. As iconic and as cool as the intro music was, the outro music this evening will not be the usual gathering crowds uh, that we use from this week in baseball. The outro music this week will be something that probably most of you have never heard and Probably most of you will be glad that you've never heard it. (laughs) But uh, the boy band, the Mexican boy band Menudo, recorded a song about the Indianapolis 500 in the early to mid 80s called, succinctly enough, Indianapolis. And I have a very long, very involved story as to how I was exposed to that song when it was first released which we will not get into tonight. But needless to say, if you stick around through the duration of this podcast and listen to that song, I implore you to then go to YouTube and find the video that accompanies said song, and I think you will find it to be... Well, why don't you just watch it and let me know what you think. (laughs) So with all that being said And the introduction uh, to the episode out of the way I would like to introduce our guest this evening Uh, This is a guy that I met Probably some 11 or 12 years ago We were working together in a former job And someone told me that I should introduce myself to this guy because in the course of our conversation, it came up that I was a big fan of motorsports and of Indianapolis in particular. And this guy told me, well, you need to introduce yourself to this guy that's working over there. I think he's really into the Indianapolis 500. At which point I believe it was that night I walked over and we, uh, you know, introduced ourselves to to one another
1: while we zone
0: yes and uh we just immediately hit it off talking about the indianapolis 500 and uh we have been fortunate enough now for the past 10 11 years to have gone up uh for time trials weekend together that tradition will continue this weekend uh my guest A very good friend of mine and an equally obsessive Indianapolis 500 fan. It is with great pleasure that I introduce my friend Alan Olinger to all of our listeners of the Blockout Sports Pod. Alan, thank you so much for uh, being here with us tonight. I can't wait to uh, not only discuss this year's 500, but to, to talk about some things that some shared experiences that we've had and uh, get your general feelings about uh, not only motorsports in general, but the Indianapolis 500 specifically. How are you tonight?
1: Doing great, Trav. Uh, Glad to be here. Hello, race fans and sports fans of the uh, blockout.
0: Well, and so we were talking a little bit before we uh, sat down to record tonight. And I thought we might start with kind of a comparison. I actually brought it up on uh, the blockout a couple weeks ago when we were discussing the Kentucky Derby. And I said to people that might not understand that the Kentucky Derby isn't just about the two minutes or whatever of the race. Much like the Indianapolis 500 isn't necessarily just about the you know, two and a half, three hours that it takes now for the race to be run. There are so many traditions, uh, so much is passed down from generation to generation. And, Alan, I was just curious, what initially drew you to Indianapolis, or really start a little bit before that, what drew you, to motorsports in general and then what drew you to Indianapolis and some of your earliest memories of uh of having an interest in the Indy five hundred?
1: Well, it really is the uh, interest in motorsport in Indianapolis for me really go head to head and it starts in the mid sixties when I was a child, probably first, second grader, and uh I lived here uh, locally where we are, and uh, my parents, very modest uh, middle-class home, but every Memorial Day, at that time, the race still was held on Memorial Day. It was not uh, a Sunday slot like it is now, but uh, every Memorial Day, we'd have a cookout. And my parents, who met in San Diego in the 40s with uh, sprint car racing, or actually midget car racing was really big. They still had enough interest in the Indianapolis 500. It was a big thing in Memorial Day, still in the mid-60s, that they would have the radio broadcast on with Sig Collins, as you mentioned, which I had no idea who Sig Collins was, but his voice definitely led a impression, left an impression on me. And uh, I was captivated by the radio broadcasts uh, when we had – Uh, cookouts on Memorial Day, so at that point, uh, of course, being a little boy, uh, at that time, I was into things like uh, uh, comics and G.I. Joe's. Maybe G.I. Joe wasn't quite out yet, but playing playing war with friends, you know, uh, uh, but uh, I soon became uh, really interested in cars and specifically race cars, so I think Indy 500 really... Sparked my interest in racing in general, and, and cool cars, and uh, that was all. Initially, radio, but then the uh, ABC network would have the following f- Saturday on Wide World Sports. They'd always have a. I think it's usually about an hour of the program. It mm-hmm. would, would be the Indy Five
0: Hundred. And I find that very interesting because, as a youngster. Clearly, I have no memory of, of watching on television. Much like yourself, my initial draw into the race was through the radio network. Now, by the time I was cognizant of what was going on, Paul Page was the voice, was the anchor voice of the 500. Equally, I mean, I shouldn't say equally, but to people of my generation, I guess he's kind of our Sid Collins.
1: Well, he was his disciple. So. Yeah, right. <laughs>
0: um, and so I find that so interesting that so many people, especially of my age or a little bit older or much older, you know, like my father or somebody like that, uh, if you weren't at the race, your way to connect to the race was through the radio. And to this day, in and around Indianapolis, you can't watch the race live because of a local television blackout. So the the tradition for a lot of folks is to listen to the radio call, have your cookout or whatever, and then I think it's at 6 o'clock or something like that, they put the race on tape delay. Back in the day it was on ABC, now it's on NBC. Um, and that's how people consumed the race for many many years,
1: it actually nationwide it was that way that it wasn't in Indiana, in Indiana, central Indiana. It was that way nationwide for a period from well, unfortunately, the tragic race of '73 was the first year that they broadcast it same day, and uh, up till '86, that's how the whole nation did. If they wanted to hear the race live, they Either, I think they still had closed circuit, which they did in the 60s, and then you had to listen to a radio and watch it at night.
0: Yeah, and I I, I just find that so interesting and in that whatever formula they figured out, it clearly worked um, for, for many years. I mean, it still is the largest uh, live attendance single sporting event in the world, right? I and, believe so, yeah. And uh, I've been fortunate to have attended several races. I'll be going back again this year. And I, I cannot implore you enough. And I, I understand that some people can be intimidated by the massive crowds, Some, you know, 300, 350,000 people, however many they pack in there these days. But if you don't go to the race, go to a practice, go to a time trials day, um,
1: it's you a know, great, great venue. There's not just the track. There's the museum. There's all sorts of things going on. It's like going to a park. So uh,
0: Yeah, and I also think that a lot of people can't fathom the size. Right. I, everyone that, that I talk to that has gone recently and had never been before, the first thing out of their mouth is, I couldn't believe how big it was. And I don't think you, I, you, you can't get a sense of that just from television.
1: Well, I, I should mention also, I had next door neighbors, their last name was The Littles when I was a child, and their family was from Chicago, and they were into racing. So they are actually not my parents necessarily, but their dad and the brothers, I would go with them to the uh, local Local uh, track, which is no longer in existence, but we also went to the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the late 60s, probably 66, 67. So that's something else that solidified the speedway in Indianapolis with me. We went to the museum. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the first time you go in there, um, it leaves an impression, even before you see a car, and that leaves another impression when you see a car go by you at 230 miles, 240 miles an hour.
0: Now, this may be an ignorant question for some people that are historians, but when you went that first time, was the museum where it is now or was it still inside the main gate as soon as you walked in? If you I, remember.
1: I, it's, it was, I think where it is now, but smaller.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, we've been to, and the museum is a, as Alan said, is a is a wonderful thing if you've never been before, and even if you've, uh, Alan and I make a point every year. I don't think that we've ever gone where we didn't spend some time in the museum. Well,
1: usually you've got at least one raid delay during the weekend. <laughs>
0: <so>. <laughs> that is true. Um, you were saying before. Uh, do you remember specifically? What year you first showed up at Indianapolis?
1: well for for the museum or for uh, time trials? Either one. Museum, I think it must have been sixty six or sixty seven um, Time trials. actually, I went to the the wood race I've made it to because I am one of the people who' not real enamored with big crowds, although I would like to go to see the race again. Uh, The one year I saw the race was 87. My sister was working for someone who had tickets. Uh, So I saw Big Al with his fourth 500. Uh, But then I went to time trials from 89 through most of the 90s.
0: And early in your fandom, uh, you know, as you said you started listening to those races when uh with your parents and everything at those cookouts um did you have a particular driver you know as as a youngster that uh that you latched on to or were you just basically enamored with the race in general or did you have somebody that you particularly were hoping would win the race every year
1: i think initially it was just when I fast I became fascinated with motorsports probably mid late sixties. I'd watch everything was broadcast on television, F one stock cars. Back then, Wide World Sports would broadcast all types of racing, hydroplanes, which that's something that my family did go see or hydro is hydroplane racing, um, which was totally different back then. <laughs> it wasn't jet engines, it was it was a World War Two uh sixteen cylinder right prop, right prop engines. Right. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, I think that just, uh, racing in general, what captivated me, it was a little while before I had favorite drivers. I think if you go to the 1967 500 in the call on ABC, when AJ Foyt comes through the, uh, it was a real, uh, it was a real, uh, Best at the end of that race. Uh and uh he comes through uh in Jim McKay say, Where's AJ? Where's AJ? There he is. And uh I think that left an impression on me. And then as I've mentioned to you before, I saw AJ Foyt drive stock car at the local Fairground Speedway probably a year or so after that. So I think AJ Foyt's the first driver I really became aware of as a star and he's pro. he's favored by it still his team's still favored favorite of mine just because of AJ.
0: Well, and I knew that as a rhetorical question, when I asked it. I knew what the answer was going to be, but I knew that our listeners would not know that. But, uh, no, Alan is one of the all time great fans of AJ Foyt. And obviously for great reason, A.J. Foyt being just one of the many legends of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and uh, one of a few guys that have won four races. Now, you said earlier that you were at Al Sr.'s final 500 win in 1987. Is that correct?
1: That is correct.
0: That's pretty cool. I was at... Uh, Elio Castro Neves fourth win which in the modern era of my attendance of the race is one of the things that I'll never forget and yeah, that's right. it's it's those things those historical things that happen only at Indianapolis that make the race uh, what it is and that all brings me back to something that we had uh, that I had mentioned in the intro, which is the traditions that surround the Indianapolis 500. And we have already discussed the personal traditions of the cookouts and the listening to the radio. But I wanted to ask Alan, what are some of your favorite traditions that happen? Every year, no matter what era it is, who might be driving uh what the teams are, the traditions surrounding the track and the five hundred just some quick things that come to mind immediately for you
1: well, I didn't grow up in Indianapolis, but I've been aware of the festival largely because of from louisville, so uh uh um, we have a Derby festival every year. And I think by the time I was a teenager, I realized that Indianapolis had a festival every year also with parade. So that's, that's a big deal up there. It's a parade. It's a big deal, uh, for the people who run the speedway also, of course, they're very civically involved in that. And then the, uh, I think it's neat. They, uh, I guess it's at 6 AM when the gates open. They always have a, uh, the big cannon blast, yeah, right. Uh, aerial, uh, uh, explosion and uh, and uh, yeah, just neat, thing, neat things like that. Uh, uh, we all miss Jim neighbors I think uh, that wasn't something that I think I've heard Donald Davidson, who I think we'll talk about at some point, but uh, uh Donald Davidson talk about uh, the history of uh, back home again. But back home again probably one of the biggest things as far as festivities leading up to the race that happened inside the Speedway every year. There's, of course, uh, seven or eight things that we grew up with, probably three of which are no longer done, but still have Purdue Marching Band, and back home again, and uh, several other things that we look forward to every year. It's part of a, a buildup that leads to the, uh, we all anticipate the start. Uh, there's no other race start like it with, a flying start of 33 cars, but, uh, anyway.
0: And I have to tell anyone who's listening who has never seen this live. My seats for the race happen to be on the outside just through turn one. And every year when this is going to sound kind of goofy, But every year when I know that they're coming for the green flag. I mean, it it brings tears to my eyes, not just because of the sentimentality of the whole thing. It brings tears to my eyes because that may be the most nervous I am. Those 30 seconds may be the most nervous I am for any 30 seconds of the whole year. Because if you've never been there and haven't seen it happen right in front of you, you cannot imagine what that is like. Well, I think it's uh,
1: uh, I think as human beings. We share uh, emotions, and I think there's a lot of that in the stands, and there's a lot of that in the cockpits as they come to that start. There's a lot of butterflies, a lot of nerves. <laughs> and you
0: mentioned uh, back home again in Indiana, which is – you know, for people of our age or our general age, uh, will always be associated with Jim Neighbors. Um if you're not familiar with that, please just go to YouTube and look up any year really after about seventy three, I think. Yeah, about seventies. There, there were a few years where other people might have done it, but if you just type in Jim Neighbors back home again in Indiana You'll get what that's like, and unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, and the the guy who's replaced him is uh, an Indiana University grad. Uh, His last name is Corneliuson, and his first name escapes me at the moment, but he's the guy that's very famous for doing the national anthem uh, at the Blackhawks games. Oh, yeah. And he's done a wonderful job, but for traditionalists like us, there'll never be anybody like Jim Neighbors singing that song, right?
1: Right. And, uh, I mean, Jim Neighbors, when he first, first came up to, uh, I forget the story of how he first did it, but.
0: Someone else had to, uh, had to back out, I think, close to the last minute. And they asked, they knew he was there. They asked him to do it. And And he said, I don't know the words. And somebody wrote the words like on a napkin. And that first year that he did it, he was holding a napkin.
1: (laughs) But see, that's another thing that was, was a tradition. Maybe not so much now. I mean, they still have celebrities there, but nothing like, I guess F1's trying to do now, but, uh, and celebrities don't make motorsports to me. Obviously, uh, What I am is somebody who just, from the time I was a little kid, I loved racing. loved racing against my friends on bicycles, and I always dreamed of being able to drive a race car. Not a dream I've ever fulfilled, but I can enjoy it vicariously. But back as another tradition, back in the, from I think before the war, Second World War and on, they had movie stars and celebrities at the track. That was a big thing. And up in that period in the seventies, it was still a fairly big. Jim Nabors was a pretty big star still in the seventies. Sure, and uh, so, uh, but yeah, yeah.
0: Well, and for I mean, and still to this day, the pace car driver, at least the um, ceremonial pace car driver, is usually a fairly big star. But back in the days of what I would call the glory days, the heyday of that, uh, it would be someone that was not just a big star, but also had some sort of interest or um, uh, involvement in motorsports, whether it be James Garner or Marty Robbins, both guys who actually drove race cars. Right. Uh, Marty Robbins being... and. On a side note, I do have an Indianapolis 500 ticket, one of my prized possessions, that was signed by Marty Robbins, who actually started a couple of Daytona 500s as a NASCAR driver.
1: He was a fairly accomplished stock car driver.
0: Um, That brings me to the memories part. I wanted to talk to you, Alan, about uh some of your favorite memories uh maybe of the race or some you know something that you heard or you know you remember you were there with your mom and your dad uh but just just memories that that kind of every year when the 500 comes back around things that you think about because I know I have a bunch and I'll get into them after after uh you've shared yours
1: well I already shared the uh one of sixty seven i think uh, uh another thing that happened in sixty seven was a turbine and uh that was uh the big deal uh before uh a j winning his second race or third race of um, uh, turbine in pardelli and uh for so, those
0: that don't that don't know, and probably a lot of people that are listening to this don't uh can you explain what the turbine was relative to the to the other cars in the field, and then what actually happened the Parnelli he's referring to is the legendary Parnelli Jones who only won one five hundred but probably should have won several um can you just tell us what the turbine was relative to the rest of the cars in the field and then what happened to Parnelli Jones that year?
1: Okay, well, I mean, it, this is part of motor racing that unfortunately we've lost just because of uh, the times. It's not as big a sport, unfortunately. It is to us. To me, anyway, it's still the my favorite sport, but uh, it was a bit much bigger sport. Um, in some aspects, I mean, money wise, maybe with corporate sponsorships, it's more money now. But anyway, back in the 60s, we're talking about 67, there was a lot more innovation in the automotive industry in general. And the ND500 was still a test uh, of endurance and of automotive engineering. And they had a lot. Now they are what's called a spec series. Where everybody runs the same. General specification engines, there's two manufacturers, it all run the same chassis. Back then, it was, people built chassis in their garages, it put engines together.
0: I was actually speaking with someone earlier this afternoon, and he asked me what I missed most about the old days of the 500, and I said, what I missed most is that if you and I knew what we were doing, we could have built a car in my garage behind my house. And if it was fast enough, we could have ran it at the 500.
1: Exactly. I don't know. There's a, if you watch one of the vintage Indy 500 films, there's, uh, I don't know. It's from somewhere in the mid early to mid seventies. And that they show that people built it in their garage and they put it on a trailer, uh, like a trailer. You'd haul a boat on. Right. And, right. It brought it to Indianapolis and qualified for the race. So, uh, but anyway, getting back to turbine, it was a Pratt-Whitney uh, jet engine. Um,
0: a literal jet engine. And if you can go back and listen to that race in particular on the historical uh, IMS radio network, every time that car comes around, it sounds like there's a jet taken off in front. It's totally different than every other car, right? They
1: called it the whooshmobile. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So anyway, that's uh that's an early memory, just because it was so uh, and incredible. What I, ended
0: up happening, I think, in that a, race,
1: I think with what three or two or three laps to go, uh, Pardelli uh, had to pull off the track. Who because, had been
0: dominating the race? Yeah,
1: he he had been sandbagging. They all claimed throughout qualifications. When the race started, he took off and nobody could run with him. So uh, I think uh, fifty cent. Uh, it ended up being a 50, it probably was it even 50 cent piece back then. It was some sort of part uh, failed in the turbine and he had to pull off the track.
0: Right. And, and, the and tire. Yeah. And it, uh, that's just one in a thousand stories of somebody that could have, should have, would have won the, won the race.
1: Mario is slowing
0: down. Right. <laughs> um. I was just going to say quickly that my first day at the track ever was in 1982. Uh, A very good friend of mine to this day's father took us uh, up to the speedway. I had my first ever White Castle hamburger that day. (laughs) and Unfortunately, not long after we arrived at the track, There was a tragic incident uh, that claimed the life of driver Gordon Smiley. And, you know, I was eight, nine years old, and I didn't really understand the magnitude of what had happened. But I do remember there being a certain somber tone that came across the entire speedway that day. And I think that that gave me kind of a healthy appreciation for the bravery that it takes that these guys have. And, you know, it's it's horrible that it took a guy losing his life. But as a young kid, maybe sometimes that's kind of the shock to the system that you need. And I've always had a a very healthy respect for not just the drivers, but the speedway and the sport that, um, you know, we're lucky to get to watch these guys. And we also need to understand the absolute bravery and lack of a better term, the stones that it takes to get out there and run these cars at now, you know, some 240 mile an hour down the straightaways. Um, That was an unfortunate first memory that I have of going to IMS, but also I think in a way something that has shaped my appreciation for the sport as a whole, as I've gotten older. And thankfully the, one of the things that has changed for the better is the incredible safety of these race cars, and not just the race cars, but the way that the barriers are made now, the safer barriers. You know, used to be concrete walls.
1: Yeah, Dale Senior's, uh tragic accident, 2001 I guess it was, led to a lot of the innovations that they have now. Not only in Indianapolis, uh, IndyCar and NASCAR argue about uh, who implemented the safer barrier, but... We, uh, are all grateful for that. It saved many lives and many catastrophic injuries over the last 20 years. So, yeah. And
0: just, just, just the safety, I mean, not necessarily of a fatal accident, but of the way, if you used to go into the wall front tires first, you had two broken
1: ankles, right? Well, also, uh. There was a design of the car for a while of uh, Formula, not only IndyCar, but Formula One. In the mid to late 80s, they designed the cars. Up until then, people's feet were always behind the uh, front axle. But for some reason, some bright (laughs) engineer decided to put their feet, the footwell, in front of the front axle. I guess it made the cars faster at some point, but uh, that... That led to almost the end of Rick Beers, who's another four time winner. It almost ended his career when he crashed at uh, Saddair.
0: And they used few. to call that uh, when you would see drivers of a certain era that had a certain gait to their walking. They called it the Indy Limp because if you went into the wall at Indianapolis. You were going to walk a certain way for the rest of your life,
1: right? Yeah, and a lot of guys in the early 80s, unfortunately, do uh, have that. And a lot of them still work. I know uh, people like Johnny Parsons is a spotter still. And a lot of those guys I remember from the 70s and 80s are still around. And, uh, yeah, I guess other memories, you know, past the late 60s, uh, favorite memories of the 500 include – uh I'm really I just as I mentioned before I as a teenager I got into Derby and Indianapolis both. So I mean I would I would clip uh articles about uh the der- Derby all through the Derby, the week the, the festival here uh in Kentucky and then leading up to uh the Derby and then after that, immediately back then Indianapolis was a month long, full month. Uh, usually the Monday after Derby, uh, was first day of practice. And, uh, so I would start, uh, I think probably was a teen. I wasn't able to follow it as closely. The Courier would run, uh, articles in local newspaper about Indianapolis. But then after I got out of school in my twenties, uh, I could actually go to a local bookstore that carried, uh, papers from around the country and read the Indianapolis star and follow it that and also the IMS network was broadcast locally. Uh, what time trial started so I could follow the whole month. And, uh, so there's lots of great memories from then, uh, that time. And then when I start going to time trials, I would go up a bubble day, which was the fourth day of qualifications back then, uh, up until I guess two weekend qualifications probably ended sometime in the early 2000s. But uh, up until then, it was a full month, two weekends of qualifications. I'd go up to fourth day of qualifying. And it, as I think one of the TV commentators was mentioning, or one of the guys maybe at uh, Beyond the Bricks last night, uh, the show you referenced earlier, Bubble Day used to be uh, even more full of, uh, of pathos, and emotion. The poll day was because back then you had – Uh, usually 40 to 50 cars try to qualify up until the, uh, early nineties. There were that many. And
0: just, just people don't understand that just to get into the race was an enormous accomplishment.
1: Well, it paid an enormous amount of money too. Sure, (laughs) Yeah, of course. But, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's another thing when you're mentioning, uh, your great seats, which I would enjoy, Being there at some time in turn one uh, or uh, several, I'd like to do all the turns if I had the opportunity, but turn one at the start would be amazing. But uh, just uh, when you mentioned the emotion, also you think about how much work not only the guys in the cars did, but all their teams have worked so hard to get not only to that day, but I mean, people, I don't, I don't know. I guess all sports are this way to a certain extent, but people sacrifice a whole lot to get at the top level of a sport. And the guys, uh, women who work in motorsports are no different than other sports. We love in that aspect. They, they uh, give a lot and uh, make a lot of sacrifices. So it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. That's a, one of the major, major sporting events that you could ever attend for sure.
0: And I'm going to put you on the spot right now. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you, what in your lifetime is your favorite Indianapolis 500 and why?
1: I think, and I think Kevin, like on the broadcast today, touched on it a little bit. It's very melancholy bibbery. but 2011, just because of how dramatic it is and what happened later that year to the winner of the 500, I think they were mentioning on Beyond the Bricks that uh, he was one of only two, I think, winners they mentioned, who two or three that had passed away before the next year's race, but Dan Weldon died uh, at a race later that year, but... Is uh win in the 2011 Indy 500 is one that uh, I always remember. I think is my favorite. And can
0: you and, describe what happened at the end of that race? Well, uh, 2000
1: Indy 500, 2011 Indy 500. Uh, they actually did a recap on the broadcast today of practice. Uh, it was a pretty, pretty intense race. Uh, there, were, there was quite a bit of uh, it early fairly early in the spec car era. Spec car racing, for one thing, makes things a lot closer. I mean, there's a lot of guys who are able to stay in competition, whereas 20 years, 30 years ago, probably only the top 10 cars were really competitive. Nowadays, since the turn of the century, uh, really everybody pretty much who's in the field, uh, depending on your team, I mean, the cars are... Fairly similar, so a lot of people have a chance to be competitive. Wouldn't I mean, you say it, there's
0: like 15 cars that legitimately have a chance to win the race this yeah, year?
1: And that's only because there's only that many top engineers, right? And, uh, right. I mean, if all the teams had the same quality of engineering, it'd probably be even more. But, uh, um, because even though they're spec cars, uh, I mean, everywhere these cars race the engineering still, because they do have different, a lot of different settings they can do different teams. I know Penske has their own stock pro, shock program and I mean, things like that. So even though it's spec, it's spec racing, there's still a lot of variables according to the accounting for your your monetary ability and your engineering ability. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, 2011, pretty competitive race, uh, Dan Weldon had wood once before, uh, he was competitive all day. Um, J.R. Hildebrand was an unknown quantity. Really? He was a rookie, um, who that day had, had a really good car and he'd driven a great race and, uh, through, uh, I think, uh, the target Chip Ganassi cars had pretty much dominated out front most of the day, but a lot of guys were competitive, as I mentioned, and, Weldon and J.R. Hildebrand had been in the top ten, I guess, most of the day. But towards the end of the race, Hildebrand had a fairly good lead over Weldon. I think they may have been the only two cars on the lead lap, at least at near the front of the lead lap. I think I that's right. And uh, uh, Dan Weldon was a racer. I mean, he was still, because as he says in post-race interview, you knew a lot of people were uh, low on fuel so he was pushing he was pushing hard a lot of guys in other years when the leader had that kind of a cushion and that much of a lead have, would have backed off but he was still pushing hard and you can actually see him if you watch the replay uh closing the gap but he was still far behind on the final lap and then uh jr hildebrand unfortunately made what most people would call rookie mistake. I don't know if I categorize it that way. But, I mean, there was a car going slow in the apron or down near the uh, inside of the turn in the fourth quarter. And JR, unfortunately, got up in the marbles, which marbles, uh, to people who aren't race fans, are shavings from tires. Race tires are very soft, and they leave residue that comes off the tire as the car goes around a track. And he got up in that stuff, and it's like ice. And he went into the wall, hit the wall, and kept going down the main straight. But as his car was only on three wheels, he didn't have any drive. So Dan Weldon, who still had his floor, foot on the accelerator all the way to the floor, comes by and passes him a, a hundred yards so from the yard of bricks, which is the finish line, and uh, became a two-time winner, which is a he. He was a Very likable. Uh, There's, that's another thing. I mean, there's drivers that uh, just are great personalities. He was a great personality and he was a favorite of mine. So that one's special to me. I I mean, there's a lot of other ones that I enjoy a lot. I mean, the 82 race and uh, 92 and lots of others.
0: And I love that. And it's interesting that you're talking about a guy getting in the marbles in turn four. Because my favorite race that I ever attended live, I was sitting on the inside of turn four when Emerson Fittipaldi, who was dominating the race, got in the marbles in turn four and crashed right in front of us that allowed Al Unser Jr., who at that time was my favorite driver, to win his second race. And that, I mean, that's a memory I'll, I'll never, because they were driving the, uh, Penske, um, Marlboro cars. They all looked the same.
1: Right. right.
0: And Emerson Fittipaldi had dominated most of that race. But when he like, you know, you kind of forget what's going on during the race when he slid out and he hit the wall right in front of us, I remember somebody behind me going, that's M.O. And then everybody uh-huh. just going, ah. <laughs> and well, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds here, but there was a reason why a lot of people that were diehard Indianapolis 500 fans were not rooting for Emerson that year. It had to, do, it, it had
1: to do with tradition. <laughs> it, it had to do with tradition, though. It did.
0: So. Uh, quick story: he had, uh, it's tradition that uh, the winner of the Indianapolis 500. Drinks milk Since in the winter the circle.
1: 50s, I guess, sometime in the
0: 50s. And that particular year, Emerson Fittipaldi did not want to do that because he was growing oranges. He was making orange juice, and so he wanted to drink orange juice. Which, in the grand scheme of things, does not seem like a big deal.
1: Unless you're into tradition, <laughs> but to,
0: to people that really care about the Indy 500, that was a cardinal sin and there were very few people inside the speedway that day that were rooting for mo there weren't a lot of mo fans no and uh there was a huge contingent of people that loved al hunter jr The her
1: family i mean the other family is of course
0: of course and i was one of those guys and so that that to me is my greatest memory of being at the race and something that I'll never forget as long as I live. And I cannot wait to get back up there this weekend. Uh, quickly, before we finish tonight, uh, Alan, I wanted to ask you if you had some uh, some drivers, some people that you might uh, tell people that might not be super f- familiar with uh, IndyCar racing, are there some, some names you have in mind to look at going into qualifications this weekend?
1: Well, off will top of my head, I think I have four that I think could do well. Um, um, a couple of which would be great stories. Uh, a couple of which I think are just, uh, they're under the radar. Like you said, I mean, there's going to be favorites from the big teams and, uh, um, uh, But, uh, Marco, who is on one of the big teams, it's on his dad's team, but it would be fantastic if he was... That's
0: Marco Andretti, uh, by the way.
1: Mario's grandson. Right. And, uh, um, I think Redis VK, um, uh, Ed Carpenter, uh, racing is always strong at Speedway. And I think Redis, uh, is a great, uh, super Speedway driver. Um... You know I would be happy with that. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then uh, some couple guys have really impressed me recently. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, Ritas VK. Uh, no, I just bitched Ritas. <laughs> Kristen Lugard. These forders, Christian uh, Lugard. Uh, yeah, he uh, is. Uh, uh,
0: he's he's become one of my favorite drivers this season. I love the way he drives
1: yeah i mean he's uh he's really great and then uh one of my favorites and he's also on a strong team is takubo uh who is a two-time winner uh but he's uh isn't it
0: weird because he is a two-time winner but he's he is flying under the radar as a two-time winner
1: well because he's a part-timer right and uh he
0: only drives ovals now, correct?
1: Well, actually, they were mentioning today that depending on how he was, does, he, how he does next Sunday or a week from Sunday, I, he may not be in the car. They may put the uh, guy who's doing the street courses in the car for the other. Interesting. Two oval. Oh, I think there's only two more oval races, or three if you count the two at Iowa. Probably they don't rate. I think there's only three more oval and races.
0: That's incredible. I mean. Sato last won the five. It's not like he won the five hundred fifteen years ago. <laughs> it's like three But years he won ago. three <laughs> years ago, I think.
1: Three or four. Which
0: seems, but... I mean, it just seems incredible to me. And uh, I was listening to the interview with uh, Johnny Rutherford on Beyond the Bricks uh, earlier this week where he was talking about the chance that he got to, you know, develop as a driver and become – an Indy 500, not you know, a rookie, a contender, a winner, and so forth. And Jake Query made made the comment something to the effect of, uh, "Yeah, you wouldn't get that much time now."
1: Well, I mean, that's something about our our sport. My favorite sport. What are your favorite sports? Is that uh, they don't. They don't have, like, the portal, you know, where they could just go from team to team. That's and, very true. Uh, Takuma has always brought, even though he is a I mean, he's a two-time Indianapolis winner, uh, he still has to bring Buddy to be able to race. Only the top, I think, I think there's only four or five guys who actually don't have to bring Buddy from year to year that are the top guys on Pitsky. And Dreddy. Uh, I think everybody else has to bring somebody. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, and it. I was thinking earlier with, because last year he raced the whole season. He didn't do poorly. Um, I was thinking maybe with his family. I mean, I think he has three kids. I think he may be trying to throttle back on his career. So, but, uh, and that's a lot. That's common with guys getting to their 40s, their past winners, of Indianapolis. A lot of them will run limited schedules and then only be there uh, for it like TK this year. He's only running the 500.
0: Right. And there are a few guys. I mean, another former winner, uh, Ryan Hunter Ray, is running this year only in the 500, which is something that's unique to that race that people will, you know, just point to that race and say, that's what I'm doing this year.
1: Now, that's how big it is if you're a race car driver. I mean, even the guys, everybody around the world who races cars. Uh, we have an Argentina, an Argentinian this year in the 500. Um, uh, and apparently, it's a really big thing in Argentina that he's driving in the Indy 500. And that's something in Central and South America, I guess, we don't fully appreciate. And motorsports is really big. And those people uh, know about Indy. And whenever you have a Latino driver, uh, there's always a big fan base back in their home country. Sure. So, uh, and they're even talking about having a car race in, uh, Argentina in the next couple of years. And so. I think
0: that would be awesome. And you know, we're, uh, Alan and I are both, uh, not just fans of the 500. We're fans of the, uh, the racing series in general. And I, you know, it's. It's great for the series. It's great for the fans. It's great for the drivers. The bigger that it gets, the more international exposure it can get. And I implore anybody out there that uh, really has never watched an IndyCar race, give it a shot. If you are a fan of motorsports at all, I think you're really going to dig it. And uh, if you have a chance to come, to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, uh, that will certainly cement your fandom. I think if you don't walk out of there after one day and say, Man, this is one of the coolest places on earth, then you probably aren't really a motorsports fan. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, not a gearhead if you can't get into <laughs> Indianapolis. Al- ever- Go ahead. I was going to say, if you ever enjoyed, uh, tinkering with an automobile or just, uh, going to an automotive showroom or just anything to do with cars or racing in general, I mean, it is the, it's been called the, uh, racing capital of the world, the temple of speed. There's all sorts of, you know, things that, uh, but it's all that and more. It's, uh, it's a great, great trip.
0: Um, before we go, I'm going to, uh, first of all, thank, Alan, for uh, being here tonight, for uh, sharing his memories and his stories uh, uh, that surround the Indianapolis 500. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to remind everybody that as soon as I sign off tonight, you should stick around and listen to uh, to the outro music this week. I think you'll get a huge kick out of it alan i wanted to uh just throw it back to you very quickly Do you have any final thoughts for uh for our listeners this week
1: uh, i just like thank everybody for listening and as you've said travis i think it's uh if it's somebody that listens to the podcast that is not really familiar with uh, indianapolis and uh the racing there, uh, give it a shot. I think NBC's doing a good job on NBC major network and Peacock covering it. Uh, I really enjoyed the practice day coverage today.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, it was very cool. Um, we will record tomorrow night, a regular episode of the blockout sports pod. As always, I want to thank everybody that listens each and every week. Uh, if you, have some thoughts about the episode tonight, please reach out to us. We are on social media. The easiest way is to go to Twitter at blockout pod or on Facebook. Just type in blockout sports pod in your, uh, search bar. Um, so thank you everybody for listening. Uh, enjoy your month of may. We will be back tomorrow with a regular episode and next week, we will have another uh, double episode. We're going to do another uh, Indy 500 preview show uh, after the time trials. So we'll know what the starting grid looks like. Um, for my great friend and a great fan of the 500, Alan Olinger. My name is Travis Carter saying so long everybody